Hello, welcome to Stump Death and Taxes. This is Meep, also known as Mary Pat Campbell. I'm a life actuary, and today I'm talking about danger. It's danger and all sorts of dangers. I want to tell you a story first and then the inspiration of why I'm talking about dangers today. Um, so I was at grad school in the year 2001. And of course, September 11th happened and I rethought my life and I'm like, oh, what am I doing? And uh, I dropped out of grad school and started working at TIAA Craft going down the actuarial career. And the TIA Craft buildings were only a couple of blocks away from Grand Central Terminal. So there's a lot of important things there. And people had been talking about, well, you know, if terrorists hit Grand Central with a dirty bomb, you know, a nuclear suitcase bomb or something like that, aren't you worried about that? People were asking me and I, you know, didn't really give it any thought. I'm like, no. You know, if there's a bomb, you know, a nuclear bomb at Grand Central, I will have nothing to worry about. Dead people have no worries, you know, boom, and it's over. So that's kind of, for that kind of risk, that kind of danger, no, I don't worry about it at all. Stuart would have to worry about it. He would have been out in Queens. We were living in Queens at the time. Um, Not me. So <laughs> that's my approach to risk. Now, there are other risks I did have to worry about, such as I had, uh, you know, one kid at that point, and actually in 2003, so that's the year I started working at TIA, um, in August, there was this big blackout uh, in the city that I had to deal with, and that was, that everybody had to deal with, uh, and I had to you know, figure out a way to get from Manhattan to Queens and all sorts of stuff. Um, so there are a variety of risks and dangers in the world that we have to navigate. Um, and the reason I'm talking about this, other than being an actuary in general, but what made me think about this this week is there were two podcast episodes that are in my regular rotation of, you know, podcasts I listen to. One is the Research Insights podcast from the Society of Actuaries Research Institute. And they had the 16th annual survey of emerging risks, key findings. And so Max Rudolph was talking with Dale Hall from the SOA Research Institute about the results there. I'm not going to tell you, you know, any of the results from these. I'll put these in the show links so you can go and listen to it yourself. These are these podcasts aren't very long. And then the other podcast is Crossing Thin Ice with the Actuarial Risk Management and um, so they were talking about fear or danger. So you'll hear this name again. Max Rudolph is part of this. So it's Max Rudolph and Dave Ingram talking and crossing thin ice. And in fear versus danger, again, they're talking about risks, um, but from a different angle here and talking about kind of uh, decision making around risks, uh, we have this thing called ERM, Enterprise Risk Management, and uh, unlike 
you know, this emerging risks uh, survey, which is more from the perspective of, say, insurance companies, uh, ERM, uh, enterprise risk management, this could be any kind of company. And every kind of organization needs to think of ERM. They all have risks that they're exposed to. And what are the emerging risks? What are they thinking about? And fear versus danger has to do with fear being the emotional reaction to downside of risks. And danger is supposed to be kind of the rational quantification of what's really the actual downside. And that's the way this is being framed. And their discussion is, well, when you're doing risk decision making and trying to optimize that, is fear really a detriment in this emotional reaction? Is it really driving you in the wrong Direction because a lot of people do have fearful responses to all sorts of dangers. And I would argue in many cases that um, people, people do not have the appropriate emotional reactions to really real dangers uh, that they have um, and not taking certain risks seriously that they should. Um, now, I have some teenagers or, you know, some. Uh, kids that are, when I say kids, I have children, two of whom are adult age, just barely, and one who's not. But of course, we know young adults, all, they don't have the experience, first of all, to necessarily make good judgment calls. But even so, if you remember back to your own adolescence, I'm assuming kids aren't listening to this, who would, well, maybe they are, hey kids. Um, but in general, children don't know enough to make good judgment calls, but a lot of times just the emotional emotions, the hormones drive them. The emotional response is such they often make stupid decisions. Uh, I was talking to someone earlier this week about when I worked at math camp, who, you know, it's, it's gifted students who really love math who are at math camp, but we had our number one rule was don't do stupid stuff. And of course, math campers did stupid stuff all the time. It was not related to math that the stupid stuff was. It was related to them being teenagers and teenagers doing stupid stuff all the time. Most of us who were staffers, um, a lot of us who were staffers were still pretty young and remembered the stupid stuff and we were still doing our own stupid stuff, but it was of a different nature. Um, and I just remember the first time I got to apply this rule to some of the campers and I'm just standing there looking at the stupid thing they just did. And I said, look, you know, you cannot argue to me that this was smart, this thing they were trying to argue with me. I'm like, no, no, you cannot tell me that this thing you just did was a smart thing to do. Um, you are going to clean this thing up and we're going to repair what we can. <laughs> And, you know, you're going to have the consequences of the stupid thing you did that you're going to have to deal with. Um, and that's the, you know, the magical process of going from being an adolescent to being an adult that you're going to have to deal with your stupid stuff. Um, anyway, moving on from that, because I want to um, just talk a little bit about some historical dangers and then now current to future dangers. Uh, so I am currently reading a book 
called Jane Austen's England Daily Life in the Georgian and Regency Periods. And so this is referring to King George III and King George IV. Um, but uh, when Jane Austen was alive, she was born in 1775, I believe, and um, lived through the period that George III was king. And then his son, who became King George IV, had to take over for his dad because dad had some health problems uh, and could not remain king all the time. In any case, uh, so that was the period she lived in England, Jane Austen. And of course, this is the pre-electric age, and it was the development of the Industrial Revolution, more or less, uh, but lighting, heating, um, warmth, uh, you know, all the cooking was done on open flame, more or less. Uh, yeah, there were some ovens, as it were, but a lot of it, there was fire. Fire! Uh, and that was a big hazard. So let me read from the book. On cold, dark evenings, better-off families would sit together in the parlor or drawing room with its comforting fire. The temptation to get close to the hearth meant that long garments easily caught a light, and newspapers were full of reports of women being burnt to death. This was a hazard that had no class boundaries, with rich women as much at risk as poor ones. Nellie Wheaton was horrified to witness her 10-year-old pupil, Mary Gertrude, Mr. Petter's daughter by his previous marriage, die at Dove Nest in February 1810. So this is from uh, Nellie Wheaton's diary. I heard a scream. I ran instantly. I heard her scream again and, opening the parlor door, met her running towards it, the flames higher than her head. What a sight it was. Without the loss of a moment, I flew into the servants' hall for the ironing blanket. It was washing week, and I recollected seeing it there. I threw the blanket to the nurse, who was trying to extinguish the flames with her apron. While she was rolling her in the blanket, I ran again into the butler's pantry and servants' hall to find some water to throw upon her and cool the burning flesh. I could find no liquid of any kind. And the footnote on this, uh, this was from February 25th, 1810. Uh, Mary Gertrude Petter, uh, the girl, died on February 17th, 1810. Her mother of the same name had died uh, December 18th, 1807, at the age of 32. So uh, Nellie had been the governess. Uh, that worked in this family. And this book is mainly built off of diary entries, letters, and, uh, you know, primary sources like that to explain what daily life was like for normal people. Actually, my favorite sources are from the foreigners. There's a German guy and an American who were visiting England who wrote about their adventures in England and uh, what they found strange in England, which also tells you a little bit about Germany and America of the time. Uh, and, and one note after that diary entry was there was no water to hand because Dove Nest, the name of the house, like most houses, had no piped supply. When a house caught fire, little could be done. Um, so they're talking about houses burning down and a lot of them burnt down because of open flame in the houses. And so the next story was about a house that burnt down while uh, one of the owners was at church and her husband was off on a business trip. Um, but then the next thing is, of course, they did have fire companies at the time. 
Okay, so here's the next bit. The need for efficient firefighting and insurance against losses was made clear by the Great Fire of London, so that was from 1666, and led to the formation of fire insurance companies such as the Sun Fire Office and the Royal Exchange. These companies operated their own fire brigades, and insured properties were identified by the fire marks of the companies on the front wall of the property, a lead or copper plaque with a readily recognizable design. So I've seen some of these plaques uh, because this was also in America. Uh, you may have heard Ben Franklin founded some of the first fire companies in America, uh, in Philadelphia. And I've seen some of these marks. Um, uh, St. John's University in Manhattan, and uh, you can see it in the Cooper Square in Manhattan. Uh, they have a risk library and they have some of these plaques up in their library that you can see with the various fire insurance uh, company names. And people would put these on the buildings so the fire companies could identify them. Uh, so they had their own risk mitigation efforts. So this is what's interesting about insurance companies over the years. Not only would they pay money, you know, if you had losses, but they also had risk mitigation as part of their services. And that's actually still true today in some property and casualty insurance. They will uh, work with policyholders, like especially for property insurance, but like not just property insurance, but liability and other things to prevent getting a loss in the first place. They would rather not pay out. And life insurers, ha ha ha, would also like you to live as long as possible. So think about that. Um, that's why some life insurers have been doing programs to try to improve the uh, life expectancy, try to improve the mortality on the books for their life policyholders. They would like you to live longer, just, in, you know, and I'm not saying anything about the annuity uh, people anyway, um, but for uh, life I mean, uh, John Hancock Insurance, they have uh, something called the Vitality Program that does stuff like that, but they're not the only ones. There's more and more of that where life insurers like, yeah, um, some of the stuff that we do can help improve life expectancy, um, especially now it's not just pandemic, but other things such as increased motor vehicle accident deaths that we need to deal with. Now, fire, of course, was, um, you know, that's a big danger and people were not, I mean, people did take it seriously and you could tell, uh, that governess knew exactly and the other, uh, servant knew exactly what you were supposed to do. You were supposed to smother a fire. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of these people were used to having to deal with people going up in flames. It was pretty common. And I have another story here. And this was uh, of a Anglican minister, I believe. And this is from his diary. Um, ben, this is his manservant. Uh, went to help Stephen Andrews' men at harvest, came home in the evening in liquor. That is, he's drunk. I saw a light burning in Ben's room. Upon that, I walked up into his room and there saw him laying flat upon his back on the bed asleep with his clothes on and the candle burning on the table. I waked him, made him put out the candle and talked with him a little on it, but not much as he was not in the capacity of answering but little. I was very uneasy to see matters go on so badly. 
So what was that about? Well, a lot of houses caught on fire because of a candle that was left. I mean, it's like you leave something on. Like, did it leave the oven on? Well, think back not too long ago, how many house fires got started because someone was smoking in bed and fell asleep. We don't get that as often anymore because people don't smoke as often anymore. Um, and think about it if people were smoking as much as they used to, but we got everybody to switch to vaping, how many fewer fires there are. But now what are the dangers with regards to fires? <laughs> it's the electric batteries people have for electric vehicles of whether it's bicycles or cars or whatever. And so now we have different dangers of starting fires. Fires are still around with us. So that's kind of interesting to think about. But there's other dangers, and I'm, I'm staying to the concrete dangers for right now um, and really kind of focusing on uh, deaths uh, in particular. Um, so one of the things that, of course, I get into mortality a lot, you know, I'm a life actuary, um, but a lot of people like focusing on, uh, ch ch I don't say like, but focusing on things that kill little kids and, you know, guns and blah and blah. But of course I point out, you know, for very small children, one of the biggest killers is drowning. And a lot of people, you know, don't think about that. And the moment they hear about that, they lose interest, uh, because they would rather have something sexier, I guess, or, you know, it's not something they want to make a big campaign about. But it is something I bring up every year because I think it's important to know. Not many things kill very small children, but it is something you can prevent. Some of it is because people don't know how serious a danger it is of how easily small children drown. It's more the smallest children. It's different for older people. A lot of drownings of people who are older, there's often alcohol involved. So, you know, don't, don't drink and get in the boat without a, you know, a life jacket, but even putting on a life jacket, you can still drown. Um, just an FYI. Uh, but a lot of people just don't take that risk seriously. And that's what sometimes happens is they don't realize it's a serious risk. They think, oh yeah, um, it's the pool is not that deep, but for little kids, certain things are a lot more dangerous than people think. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. It's that you should pay more attention. That's all. Um, the sweet spot for little kids, I mean, by little kids, I mean, under the age of five, once they're school age, uh, the younger kids of school age, like five to 12, that's actually the lowest mortality rate of anything. Um, so they're actually not dying of much. Um, that's good to know. But let's think of some other kinds of dangers that don't necessarily end in death, but can, uh, and people don't necessarily take terribly seriously. One is cold and exposure. People have gotten lost in their vehicles and they die of cold. Um, there are people who do not adequately prepare for your normal seasonal storms or a little bit extreme storms that can occur in their area. 
Stuart and I were prepared for, you know, it's not, we could say hurricane, but barely, you know, tropical storms of the various kinds, Sandy and Irene and whatnot. I don't remember even the names because we grew up, you know, in the Carolinas and Georgia for me, and we got used to seeing hurricanes around. And we knew that hurricanes have visited New York State before. Of course, you can get storms here. You should be prepared for power outages and other things that maybe you can't get water for a while, and maybe you can't get this, that, and the other for a while. So be prepared for that. Um, A lot of people don't like, you know, if it's not right in front of them, they don't think about it, but like likelihoods can be pretty good. Of course, some people are constrained in how much they can prepare for. I understand that. But, you know, there are all sorts of materials for things that you can prepare for. There are lots of government agencies that are out there like, just ask us, we've got brochures, we've got websites. Um, So, there are those kind of things. And of course, getting back to what I'm all about, which is death. We all know we're going to die. It's a matter of when and how. Um, a lot of people worry about some very low probability uh, causes of death and don't really focus on the very high probability ones and timing. Most people really need to worry more about, you know, needing to save up for retirement, (laughs) and also particular causes of death in terms of like heart disease and cancer and, you know, getting cancer screenings at certain times. Um, A lot of people don't want to do it and don't want to think about it. One of the things, of course, I do every November is do the Movember Foundation fundraising, and I have noticed the creep up in prostate cancer deaths which I believe may be related to a drop in prostate cancer screening. Um, I'm not happy about that. I, I, the, the treatments have improved, like once people are diagnosed and get treated, that's been improving in terms of survival rates, but you have to actually get screened in the first place. Um, and the, uh, and the survival rates for, Uh, Black men, for example, are not great. I think they're not getting screened often enough. So, you know, some things it's like people don't want to do it. It's unpleasant, I understand. But this is the whole thing, fear or danger. You're fearing the wrong thing, fearing the screening (laughs) test versus considering the danger of the cancer that's very easily treatable if something is found at an early stage. So, you know, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of trade-offs here. And uh, I think the podcast, specifically the crossing thin ice with fear versus danger, the um, the SOA research insights podcast and the crossing thin ice podcast. Yes, these are more focused towards people that are in the risk industry, as it were. But the people who are listening to this podcast may find it of interest. So maybe give those episodes a listen see if you like them and maybe subscribe to those podcasts too so um that's been stump death and taxes and maybe you can't be rational about risk but you know just consider it think about it bye